Boy, I, you know, I think I'd more like to speak to women of, you know, who have been in the industry is grab that other female in your organization that you think has promise and, and pull them up, put them on your shoulders and keep pushing them up because we need more women to support women in the industry. And I'm seeing it more and I, I'm very pleased, but I think we need more women just to reach down, pull up the next generation and really mentor them. This is the Women of American Manufacturing podcast, where we highlight female leaders and influencers who are revolutionizing the industry. In every episode, we explore each guest's journey into manufacturing, their vision for the future of American manufacturing, and the innovation, creativity, and communication that they bring to the industry. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Women of American Manufacturing podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Athanasiu, and I'd like to welcome Don Jackson to the podcast today. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Don? I'm great. Thank you, Lindsay. Awesome. Well, I hope you have your coffee because we're, we're in for a great conversation today. And to kick everything off, I would love for you to share who you are, uh, where you work, what your role is there, and um, we'll lead off from there. Sure. My name is Dawn Jackson. I'm the Director of Sales for Streamlight Incorporated. We're a manufacturer of professional flashlights. I've been in the industry for 34 years. I hate to say it, but uh, started as a shop rat, you know, in the cutting tool tool holder industry, moved over to uh, Streamlight, which is more in the safety industry about 20 years ago. So I've been with Streamlight for 20 years. I live in Bellevue, Iowa. And the company is located in Eagleville, Pennsylvania. And we're about a 48-year-old company, privately held, but professionally ran. I love that you said you hate to say that you've been in the industry for 34 years. I mean, nobody likes to date themselves, right? But to be able to say that you've been in an industry that long is, is pretty awesome. It's, it's kind of uncommon these days. It is. It is. And we find in the manufacturing sector, though, it's, it's really amazing we always say people are recycled. So while you see people in one position, you may see them at another company, but still in the same industry. Most people that join manufacturing in the industrial sector, safety sector, they really don't leave. Not I really don't know a whole lot that leave the sector. They just really move from company to company, basically based on opportunities. Well, and that's what we want in manufacturing, right? We want to keep people. <laughs> Right, exactly. I like that term, a recycled person. <laughs> it's, I don't know if I'd <laughs> want to be considered a recycled person, but I, I like what you're getting at with that. So tell me a little bit about how you came to be where you are today. I know you didn't start your career in manufacturing, but you called yourself a shop rat. So how did you, how, what was your gateway into the shop and then all the way up to Streamlight today? Sure, absolutely. Well, I started out as a secretary. Um, that was where I had my first degree as a legal secretary, believe it or not. I worked at a bank for a few years and then I knew that manufacturing, you know, probably would give me better opportunities even as a secretary. The pay was better, the benefits were better. So I moved over to my first position in manufacturing, which is Collis Tool Corporation. That was my first job in manufacturing. I learned, it was a small company, I learned everything from, you know, working in the plant, doing CNC programming, inside sales, and eventually being promoted to the sales manager. I had a fantastic mentor. 
Paul Gassman was his name. And it actually, he still owns Collis today, but he believed in me. He allowed me to go back for my education of which the company paid for a good portion of that. And I went back to school for engineering and business, and it just allowed me to grow in a way that, to be quite honest, I never thought I would have those opportunities or have them still today. Um, So I spent about 11 years at Collis um, making, we eventually sold, Collis was sold. And um, then I, I had an opportunity to move over to Cutting Tools a company called MA Ford Manufacturing. So I spent about four years there as the sales manager. And then, you know, there were not many women in the industry back in the day. And those of us that were in the industry were well known because there weren't very many females in the industry. So our faces, everyone knew us, I I have to say, but I didn't know probably three quarters of the people in our industry when we would go to the conventions and that. Um, but I had an opportunity, a company called Streamlight solicited me um, from one of those events and kind of the rest is history. They they like my background into industrial, the real uh, hardcore industrial, we call it chips and sparks, your cutting tools and abrasives. And they wanted to grow their industrial business. Streamlight really started out in public safety, uh, servicing our first responders, law enforcement and fire. And they wanted to build that industrial sector. They felt they had a product line that they could take and and build on for that and build the company into that sector. So I was hired there as a regional sales manager for 14 states, um, but was also given the opportunity to grow their national accounts, which is really where I um, excelled both at Collis and MA Ford. Um, So while I was Working as a regional sales manager, I also cultivated several large national accounts, including MSC Industrial, uh, Fastenal, Granger, all of those. So once we had a portfolio large enough on the national account side, I moved right into national accounts as a national accounts manager. From there, after a few years in that role, I was then promoted to director of sales for Streamlight, which is my current position today. And I've been in this role for about 15 years. And tell me a little bit about the team that you manage. How big is it? You know, are they dispersed around the country? Give us a little bit of like the sales team description. Sure. So I have two sales managers, one that manages the East Coast, one that manages the West Coast. I, I primarily work with them, but they manage a team of regional managers, uh, which we have six of. And then I have a national account manager and a Canadian account manager, or I should say market manager. So I have 10 people in total that um, report directly up to me. We work with manufacturing reps and we have about 165 manufacturer reps throughout the country. uh, And I manage both the U.S. and Canada. So it would be through U.S. and Canada. And then, uh, our distribution network is, which is about 1,500 distributors that we work with on a daily basis. That's not small. <laughs> that's a that's a big group. And I'm I'm curious. I know we're going to talk about you know some of the challenges that you've overcome in recent years in your role uh, with your team. But before we do that, I'm curious. Now that we kind of know what the team is structured like and, and how many people you're you're managing on a daily basis, what is your like favorite part of your work, Don? 
My favorite part really is cultivating the next generation of leaders and watching them um, learn from the business uh, side of it, making good business decisions, helping them, coaching them, mentoring them. That right now in my role today and, and having the tribal knowledge that I do throughout you know, my career and my tenure at Streamlight, that's the most rewarding. That, that is really what I enjoy every day. Contract negotiations, I, I love. I'm probably the only person that loves those. Um, I hate to say it, I, I do love the win, <laughs> but I also like to have a win-win for both companies. So while they're challenging, I think it's a great opportunity to have conversations with companies that you wouldn't otherwise have when you get into those, those negotiations that get a little bit strained and, and you're really you know trying to sell your value and also have that company recognize that you know, it's not all about price and just being able to show that, document that and have that win-win negotiation at the end. I can tell you you're not the first person on this podcast to say you like negotiations, but you're definitely in the minority. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hear. <laughs> but I mean, if you're in sales, like obviously you love to win, right? You love right. like the clothes and the feeling of, okay, I really just advocated for myself, for my company, for my team, whatever it is. And I got us a great outcome. That's why you're in this role and you've been doing this for so long because you like to win. Right. Exactly. I will say some of uh, our managers, as as they go into the negotiations, you can tell um they don't like those hard conversations. And I've always said out of every hard conversation, there's always something to be gained. There's always a positive out of it. So I, I welcome those hard conversations. Do you have any favorite like resources or trainings or, or books that you've read over the years about negotiations that have helped you kind of be more confident walking into those tough conversations? Wow. There's been many. I can't point to just one. I will say, again, another great mentor that I worked with through my career, Brian Correa, really helped me kind of do risk analysis, if you will, uh, and how to put those risk analysis together on a negotiation and um, really feel confident when you went into a negotiation that you were asking for something that was deserving and that made good business sense. And, and would be hard to argue against. So, um, you know, there were several books, but I think also some good financial, some good business leaders that mentored me through that process and helped me, I would say, was a big part of that. Yeah, the, the personal coaching, I mean, that can go far. I'm sure you were like role playing with each other and yes. doing those in the moment scenarios and that it people roll their eyes and they hate that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think it's human nature to just like hate that. But it, it makes such a big difference in the actual moment when you've actually practiced that exact scenario or something close to it. Your brain is so much better able to just act on its feet. Right. And, and you're able to really know what you're saying and what you're trying to work toward. Yes. That's awesome. And knowing your throwaways, right? Knowing, yep. I mean, you're going to go in with everything you want, but you also recognize it's a negotiation. So you're going to lose something. So what is it? Mm -hmm. What are you willing to lose? And, you know, having that in your mind, knowing what that is before you go into ne to the negotiation is key. Yeah. No, is it your, your BATNA? That's the acronym for it? I, I've not heard that before. No. 
I think so. I think so. I I, I took a negotiations class uh, in graduate school, and we we read like four different books on it. And yeah, there's so many different acronyms. So I love hearing, you know, what what are those things that make you tick, and and what do you love about your job every day? Um, there are some things that obviously are more of a challenge, and that's I think where folks that listen to this podcast get a lot of value is hearing how these female leaders have overcome challenges throughout their career. So what have been some of those challenges for you personally and professionally, Don, that you've, you've worked through um, that you would like to share today? Yeah, I think personally, it's always difficult for, you know, again, I've been in the industry for 34 years. Um, it was difficult to travel with two small children continue my education and be a business leader and, you know, have a career managing a briefcase, a diaper bag and a child on your hip sometimes and and sometimes like a car carrier on the other arm. What was a challenge personally? Fortunately, I had a fantastic kind of a a network of uh, people that were helping me along the way, my parents, my grandparents, all of that. So I, I would say it takes a village to to help in that situation. And I was fortunate to have that village. And I know not everyone is, but it allowed me to pursue not only my career, but also my my personal goals as well. From a career standpoint, I think just being a female early on in the industry was um, very difficult to the fact that you, a lot of insecurities, right? You walk into a conference with 2000 men and you're one of five women and and most of these men are you know in their 40s and 50s and what does this 22 year old you know female have to offer to this industry uh, fortunately i had some great mentors along the way as i've mentioned a, a few there were others as well um, that did take me under their wing that did introduce me to people but i i would say um Probably the 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 biggest challenge was the being uncomfortable, being insecure about the value that I brought to the table as someone young and a female into the industry. Um, I knew I had to know more than my male counterparts, and fortunately, um, that worked to my advantage. And I also, I think, just personality, just connecting with people. Um, it was easier to connect with maybe uh, some of the male leaders in my role as a female than it would have been maybe a male as a counterpart. So there were some advantages and disadvantages. That's super interesting. You know, women are still the minority in these industries we're talking about and that we're both in. And there's still a lot of issues, you know, still a lot of things, reasons why women should be getting together, you know, talking through these issues, supporting each other. But you mentioned that you felt the need to know more than your male counterparts, even though you were brand new to the industry. How do you even go about that? You're talking about trying to teach yourself like decades of industry experience and knowledge in a very short amount of time, I imagine, because you wanted to immediately like get, get that respect and establish yourself. So, so what did you do to, to instill that confidence in yourself? Yeah, fortunately, with my engineering background, I was able to work with a lot of our engineers um, and to really understand um, the manufacturing process and the value that our products um, provided and also have that little bit of intel, um, say, for example, on cutting tools 
um, where when you know everything was around balanced tool holders and balanced you know cutting tools and 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 all of that but understanding that the minute you make that first cut into that material your your product's not balanced you know you've already wore off a side of that that cutting tool or or whatever so just having some of that knowledge when you're being tested because I was tested over and over and over again by several end users of my knowledge especially in the cutting tool industry um but just to have that knowledge and be able to answer that question uh, um, and really give them pause. Like I think sometimes when I would answer it with the correct answer or even go into more in depth answer of, of why or why not something was the way it was. I think that earned me a lot of respect early on in my career. I'm sure you just like shocked people and then turned their own feelings of their knowledge on its head. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't even know that. How are you teaching me that? Right. I mean, if they're coming yeah. up with these preconceived notions of what a young woman might or might not know, um, it's so fun to just prove that wrong. So right. early on, were you getting those moments of gratification? Just be like, ha. I was very much so. Um, and just seeing the look on their face, you could see the look on their face when you throw the answer back, they'd be like, oh, she does know what she's talking about. So Don, that those are challenges, you know, early on, both personally and professionally. And I know the pandemic, you know, was a big challenge, more recent challenge for you and your team. And I think there's a lot of uh, learning to be shared from from that um, because not just being a human, a working human in the pandemic was was a learning experience for everyone, but also like managing a team and managing a sales team that suddenly was not able to you know meet their goals and and be this previously high performing you know metrics driven team. I'm sure which is how you run it, mm-hmm. and that that is demoralizing, right? For people who are motivated by winning, you know, having tough conversations and coming out on top and establishing these great new deals and partnerships for the company. So what were your first thoughts when the pandemic started and you saw your team's numbers faltering and and maybe you started to see the writing on the wall of what was going to transpire? Yes, it was very... It was an interesting time. I can only point to that being similar to when the oil and gas industry, uh, when that fell out, that affected our business considerably as well. So I had a little bit of background in dealing with something similar, but definitely nothing to to the extent that the pandemic hit us. Um, The main thing as a leader, I, I felt was staying positive. People were afraid that they were going to lose their jobs. You know, industry was shutting down, numbers were plummeting, and you could see the team um, being very, very concerned of just their livelihood. So the first thing was really to secure, make them feel secure, make sure everyone knew that, you know, we will get through this. We work for a fantastic company. No one is going to lose their job and, and really make sure that everyone stayed positive was the first thing. Um, we also looked at, okay, businesses are, are shutting down. We cannot get to end users. We had to develop contingency plans pretty early on of what we were going to do in this time where, you know, people were now going to be in their home offices, not out on the road, not, you know, face-to-face with our customers. So what was it we could do, but still have an impact? And we really came up 
fairly quickly with a list of, you know, those essential businesses that we knew needed our product, first responders, military, um, your your municipalities, people like that, that food processing that we knew had to continue to do business. They were essential businesses and we needed to be there for them. So we developed that short list of, of companies. We also looked at what could we be doing really I'll say the positive thing that came out of the pandemic, it allowed us to step back. We all run so very hard. Um, and sometimes we're running too fast where we don't get a chance to step back and really look at the business and 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 see what we can do to really impact it. So it allowed us an opportunity to step back, look at what we needed to do, analyze our top you know, distribution, our customer base, and what are the tools we need to, when we come out of this, to be successful? And what do we need to do today just to keep things going, to be front of mind so that when when the faucet turned back on, Streamlight was the first person that they called for assistance as they, they brought their plants back up online. So that was done early on. A lot of contingency plans. We brought in our, our uh, manufacturer's representatives into those conversations we set short-term goals of things that the sales team could work on in, in like six-week increments. For the six weeks, here's what we want to do. Um, and they were tied to you know some of their performance matrices, and, and they had to document that. So that, I think, gave them a sense of purpose that they could impact something um, and not just be sitting in their office and, and just you know pondering the, you know, what's going to happen with our business. And I think early on, we saw some successes from that. Um, we saw some wins from that. And then as the pandemic continued and we were able to get some new technology, you know, we were now on Microsoft Teams, uh, which we never had before. And I, I, you know, that's one positive that came out of the pandemic. As far as I'm concerned, our company may have never I shouldn't say never. It may have been several years before we would even have that technology and we were forced to get it almost immediately, which is fantastic. So that opened a whole nother um, opportunity to reaching distributors, manufacturers, reps, training. Uh, We were even doing end user sales programs, webinars, um, just to reach end users through Microsoft Teams. We couldn't go and visit them in person, but we certainly could get them on a Teams call and go over product and and benefits there. So it was uh, a lot of communication, a lot of short-term goals, and just keeping everyone positive and moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like quite the journey, and it sounds like you, you executed it quite well. I think an interesting piece to consider is that you know, you didn't have a crystal ball, right? Right. You, and being a leader during uncertain times, I think can be extremely taxing on on the leader because you have these people that are looking to you for that hope and that clarity and, and actually some definitive things about like what is going to happen to my job, to the company, to the industry, et cetera. And you didn't, you didn't have those answers because no one did, right? But you are still just trying to maintain that positivity and assure them that you'll still have a job. The company is in a good spot, you know, and here's how we're actually going to continue making an impact, driving sales, driving revenue to the company and supporting these these industries like you mentioned, you know, municipalities, um, first responders, food processors, et cetera. So I got, I'm, my question is, you know, how did you stay positive so you could be positive for your team? 
I just started doing a lot of research, of course, and reading and and I attended some webinars and and just on new technology, things we should be doing, um, could be doing. And it just opened up a kind of a, a different outlook. Again, I had more time to do that, right? Where in my day-to-day job, as as business comes back online, you're busy, you're you're answering questions, you're keeping people moving forward, you're you're negotiating. But it allowed me to look at different technologies for you know our website and sales and and what the pandemic, what opportunities would come out of the pandemic. I knew that business would not be the same again that we're always going to have a virtual side of our business, either trade shows or training. Uh, we, we had one of our best Streamlight universities. That's where we bring in all of our outside salespeople and do training. We had one of our best Streamlight universities during the pandemic because it was virtual and where we would normally only get 40 to 50 people in attendance because they would have to come to our company. We had over a hundred people in attendance on that. So we were able to train the entire sales force, which that would never have happened in, in a normal year. So I think my positivity was I was excited. I was excited at the technology that we would we would be investing in. I was excited at what new things were going to come out of the pandemic as far as how we do business and and how distribution does business and what they would need to do to uh, continue to develop their companies, which all good. It was all good that came out of it. Did we have to go through a little bit of pain to you know, to come to the other side. Absolutely. But I think that pandemic had a lot of good things, positive things that came out of it, that it may have been two, three, five years down the road before any of us saw that kind of change. I think you like just perfectly described like what leadership is, or at least what I think leadership is. It's like you did not let uncertainty and, you know, scary things stop you from pushing forward and finding solutions and bringing people along for this common good. And you just got creative and you got after it, Dawn. I love that. Um, (laughs) You know, some people took the opportunity to just kind of check out a little bit, right? Like, I don't know what's going on. Correct. And, you know, whatever, (laughs) you know, not, not, I don't know anyone who actually said that, but um, it it could have been a time where you just kind of sat back and were like, all right, I've been grinding for a long time and, you know, sales is hard. Maybe I can take a breather. Right. Um, But instead you pivoted, you know, and you found these new ways to enhance uh, your, your work and and your team um, and by impact or by affect the company. So, you know, hindsight's 2020, is there anything you would do differently now, knowing how it all played out? That's a good question. I don't know. I I think maybe communicating earlier. We were we were kind of waiting for our corporate, you know, executive team to to really communicate to our outside sales team, being our manufacturers reps, and that didn't happen right away. They were dealing with enough through the pandemic and within 48 hours, getting everyone out of the company and working mobily and for people who didn't have computers and, and just trying to, you know, keep the business running. So they were very, I guess, very distracted of, you know, 
well, outside sales, you've always been outside sales. You've handled it. You know, we're hands off right now because we've got enough to deal with. So we kind of sat back a little bit waiting for the company to send out a note to, to a point where I felt we couldn't any longer. And I just basically, you know, drafted a letter and, and made sure our independent manufacturers reps, our folks knew, you know, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're doing to keep the, the plant running. It's a very volatile and fluid situation right now, but we're operational. Be patient. And here's what we as a sales team are doing within the next 60 days to continue to you know, be effective, to be you know, front of mind of our distribution of our end users and to continue to be, bring as much business in during that time as we could. So I think maybe acting a little quicker even though it wasn't my role, that probably would have been the one thing I would have changed. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you you mentioned that you're able to step back and, and evaluate these technologies and, and make these great changes that you otherwise might have not done as soon um, or maybe ever. So I imagine those have all had a great, a, a positive impact on your team. And now that I'm going to knock on wood, the world has opened up. And I know there are some states that are sort of closing back down right now because of the Delta variant. Um, but what now that your team has been back in the flow of things for at least a few months, what have you seen change, you know, in a good way as a result of the work you were able to put in during that moment of stepping back and evaluating and changing? I've seen our team work closer across lines so where they have territories, but we have accounts that cross lines. They're working closer now than they ever have been. The communication between, you know, different managers that that manage branches of large nationals, it, it has, you know, probably increased tenfold. Uh, so from a, a top level to the field level, we know what's going on at all the time. Um, they've developed tools within we we manage sales we manage through our Salesforce as our customer relations information, and um, just seeing the information that they're developing, the reports that they are developing, the chatter feeds that they are creating and developing to make sure that we're all communicating on those large end users throughout our entire you know network. Uh, Cross country has been amazing. They've all stepped up. They've taken the lead, and that's been fun to watch. Where I'm not the one that's pushing and and pulling to get this information created or that. They're they're really taking the lead and doing it themselves. That's awesome to hear. I I love the outcomes of the all of this that are just like humanity. <laughs> you know, it's like teamwork and helping mm -hmm. each other and being creative with with the opportunities you have. Well, kudos to you to, you know, bring your team through all that and um, be able to say that it, it, it helped you guys become closer and, and more high performing. I'm going to keep an eye on, on your numbers, Dawn. <laughs> I can't wait to see what you guys what you guys do this year and next. <laughs> so I want to know, you know, what does it mean to you personally to be a woman in manufacturing? Well, I, you know, I'm extremely proud to be a woman in manufacturing to have done the things that I've done. Sometimes I sit back in my chair and I'm just, wow, I never thought I'd do that. I never thought I'd travel there. Um, it's just it kind of awes me at, at, at some points when I sit back and really um, breathe it all in. I think women in manufacturing today have more opportunities than ever. I think 
executive teams, I think investors are looking for more diversity. We offer so much, we offer different views. We, we go about things a little bit differently than maybe our male counterparts, but at the end of the day, the results usually are the same. It's just a different way of going about things. And I, I think that diversity, I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal. They say that um, CFOs, female CFOs often bring more um, profits to a company uh, than their male counterparts. And I think it's that just that different way of thinking, that diversification that allows a company to see all sides because we are different. We think a little bit differently. There, there is definitely no doubt about that. Um, and I think we have a lot to offer and there's a lot of opportunities still out there for all of us um, and that we can break those glass ceilings when and if we want to, if we're willing to put that time in. 100%. You kind of answered my last rapid fire question uh, with that. So I think we might actually skip that one today, which means we're keeping it pretty, pretty fun and uh, topical with the rest of them, which I'm not opposed to. Uh, but that question is, you know, what's the number one reason why more women should work in manufacturing? And that just, I think, summarized. But is there anything else that you would you would say or you have said to women you're trying to recruit into the industry? Well, I, you know, I think I'd more like to speak to women of, you know, who have been in the industry is grab that other female, um, you know, in your organization that you think has promise and, and pull them up, put them on your shoulders and keep pushing them up because we need more women to support women in the industry. And I think we, I'm seeing it more and I, I'm very pleased um, but I think we need more women just to reach down, pull up the next generation and really mentor them because it, it, it is different in the manufacturing sector, I think. Um, but I'm, I'm very pleased to see some of the, the movement I have over the recent years with some of the industry, female industry groups uh, wise for the Industrial Supply Association and some electrical women in industry groups. So that's been awesome to see over the last few years. It is. It's really exciting. It's it's becoming so like normal that it, it's almost at the point where it's it not like a novel thing anymore. It's like, oh, yeah, great. Another women's group. Awesome. Like, it's not as shocking. <laughs> exactly. And I think it's um really common that women become a part of them, too. It's not like, uh, they people understand why they should do this. And, and it's very clear what the value will be. So I agree. It is cool to see. All right. So are you ready for the rest of our rapid fire questions, Dawn? I think so. Sure. Shoot. <laughs> awesome. All right. Let's go for it. So who is one famous person you wish would work in manufacturing with you? Boy, um, I think I, I'll say a couple, George Clooney and Amal, because I just think Amal is just fantastic in her role. And I would love to have her in a no negotiation with me. <laughs> I can imagine she'd be terrifying to actually, if you were on the opposite side of the table as her. Agreed. She's too smart. <laughs> I know, but boy, would I love to have her. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. What a power couple, huh? No doubt. <laughs> That's an interesting answer. I like it. Um, what's your favorite blogger podcast? You know, I really don't have a favorite one. Um, I listen to all different kinds. So I really, yeah, I really don't. And it depends on what I'm trying to do, whether it's personal and professional development or whether it's uh, finance or something like that. Then let me rephrase. What What's the most recent one you listened to or read? Oh, it was on Bitcoins. <laughs> and I can't remember cool. the name of it. I'm trying to learn as much as I can on Bitcoins. 
I love it. I love it. What's the last movie you watched? That one's easy. We just came back from uh, vacation out in Colorado, UTV writing, and we were dry camping. So no electric or water or anything. So we downloaded some movies for the kids. I took my granddaughters and we, my nephews and that, and uh, we watched uh, Harry Potter's Sussurer Stone. So that would be the last one. That's like almost vintage at this point. That's like a classic <laughs> movie, which is I crazy. Think so. <laughs> That's fun. And Dawn, I know the answer to this because I've already heard her barking, but uh, do you have a pet? And if so, what's her name? Oh, yes, Lucy. And she is a spoiled little princess. Yes. What type of dog is she? She's a Weimaraner. High energy. <laughs> have, have you seen the movie Best in Show? I have not. Highly recommend because it's about, it's a mockumentary. So, you know, filmed like a documentary, but it's making fun of documentaries about people who raise purebred dogs and compete in like the the actual shows with them. And there's one couple in particular that has a Weimaraner and it, they are like the most type A crazy people in the world. And it's, <laughs> it's very funny. I think you'd appreciate it if you have a, a Weimaraner. I think I better watch that one. It might be it might explain a few things, Lindsay. And you mentioned you went camping in Colorado. That was the last vacation you took? Yes. Yes. We just returned last week and uh, it was awesome. Colorado's on my short list to go skiing and hiking in. I attempted to go two years ago, but was foiled by a massive snowstorm hitting the area when I was supposed to be flying in. So I'm jealous and I want to see pictures. Oh, you have to definitely do it. I love it. It's my one of my favorite places. I've been there for work, but I've never actually like been able to explore and, and venture out. So um, that, that must have been a fun camping trip, especially with the grandkids. It was very much so. So Don, you've, you've worked from home for a long time, right? Yes, I have about 18 years now. So you must have like secrets and hacks to do this that you were able to teach people when they suddenly found themselves working at home. But is there like a tip that comes to mind first? If someone were to ask you, what's, what's your work from home hack or secret? Boy, I, you know, I'm not, I've been doing this so long. I think just being, you know, being engaged and making sure that, you know, my problem is being a type A person, I would sit here for 12, 14 hours and just work all day. So getting up, walking, walking away from it from time to time is very important for me and to uh, really make sure I get my exercising in. I find that is if I sit here too long and work too many hours, I really lose that creativity. So walking away, exercising and making sure that I'm allowing enough time for me, that definitely helps from a professional perspective for sure. Yeah, I love that. I, I totally agree. I know when like my my um, hip flexors start hurting <laughs> that I've been sitting too long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm always like, I'm not old enough to, to have this issue. And yet I have this issue and I get up and I do like a couple laps around the room. Cool. Thank you for that. So final question. What's your favorite food? Well, it's two, wine and pasta. <laughs> if I have pasta, I have to have my glass of wine. I would say that is a meal. That is a perfectly well-rounded meal. Yes. Are you a, you a red sauce or a spicy sauce or a white sauce? Uh, red sauce, but really my favorite is the pink sauce. Like a vodka, like a cream and tomato sauce? Correct. Yep. Mm. Right. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> yep. With a glass of red yep. wine, that's Perfect. my favorite. <laughs> and what type of wine? Like what type of red? 
Um, you know, I'm really, I like the, the blends, the red blends, mm-hmm. but I'm a cab girl at heart for sure. Cab with a good pasta or steak. Classic. I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, you heard it folks. If you meet Dawn at a conference and you find yourselves out to eat, you know what she'll be ordering. So <laughs> take notes. Um, <laughs> and on, right. on that note, if anyone listening, you know, is interested in networking with you, connecting with you, what would be the best way for them to reach you, Dawn? Uh, they can reach me through my LinkedIn page at uh, Dawn Jackson or, um, you know, Streamlight as well. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and sharing your experiences with us today. It was an awesome conversation and I'm looking forward to staying in touch. Likewise. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you. Take care, Don. You too. Bye-bye. The Women of American Manufacturing podcast is brought to you by Paperless Parts. Paperless Parts empowers job shop and contract manufacturers to modernize and grow using the company's secure ITAR compliant cloud-based estimating platform. The software streamlines manufacturers' existing workflows by combining business process automation tools and a proprietary geometric pricing engine to power configurable formulas that drive estimating consistency and accuracy. The platform integrates with ERP systems to level up front office business operations and customer communication and enables more efficient responses to RFQs for a variety of manufacturing processes, including sheet metal fabrication, CNC machining, and additive manufacturing. Over 1 million files have been uploaded and analyzed through the platform to support the estimating process for manufacturers providing components and assemblies for the aerospace and defense, medical, semiconductors, and industrial sectors. Privately funded by manufacturing industry experts, Paperless Parts was founded in 2017 and is headquartered in Boston. You can learn more at www.paperlessparts.com.